just want to be ready for that coming, God. God, we want to be prepared, my Lord. We want to occupy until that time, Lord God, becoming more like you, Jesus. Dying to ourselves, Lord God, carrying our crosses, Lord God. Enduring hardship, Lord God, enduring difficulty in this life, Lord God. But we look forward to the sound of that glorious trumpet, my God. We look forward to that day, Lord God, when the heavens will open, Lord God, and our King will call us home, my Lord. God, we look forward to that day. God, I surrender all of my heart to you. I thank you, Lord, for you are gracious. You've called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of your kingdom. So we're grateful, God. We're grateful today. For your mercy endureth forever. We thank you. Hallelujah. Come on and give God a hand of praise. He's worthy. He is worthy, worthy, worthy. We serve an amazing God. Amen. There is none like him. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 2, continuing where we left off last week. Praise the name of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 4 through to verse 12. When you got it, say so. The Bible says, Coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices according to God through Jesus Christ, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stumbling block and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation father we love you and we thank you for your word that is truth we thank you for your word that is good Lord God we thank you for your presence that is here and God we humble ourselves unto you today We acknowledge you as King. We acknowledge you as Lord. We acknowledge you as God Almighty. We acknowledge you as enthroned high and lifted up, my God. 
And Lord, we sit with our hearts humbled before you today. God asking you, speak to us. Asking you, Almighty God, that even as you have graced us with your presence, as you have entered into this place, Lord God, in a glorious and majestic way, Holy Spirit, we ask you to continue moving in our hearts. Change us as we look at your word. We surrender all that we are unto you. In Jesus' name, someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Last week, I began to talk from this portion of scripture, and because of time, our baptism service, and some meetings that we had, I was unable to preach the entire message, and so I will recap some of last week, and then I will finish off the message. Lewis, if you could help me out and lower these monitors some, because they're kind of hot. <clears throat> As I said last week, I want to repeat this. God is at work building the most glorious temple. It spans beyond borders of our cities, of our states, of our nations. It is beyond generations. It is beyond nationalities. We are the temple that God is building, and he is not saying that we alone. He communicates this clearly. The apostle Peter makes it known to us that we as individuals, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, yet Peter comes and, and, and begins to deal with this topic and he begins to share with us and show us that God is at work. He is building something. He is building a people of God. He is building a glorious temple that is going to go beyond now into eternity on until glory and glory and that is what he is building now. And on this earth as we spoke last week, one of the things we have to realize about this building is that God is wanting to build a place of habitation he wants to build a place where he can dwell and he can move a place through which he can speak a people that he can use to bring glory and honor to his name and one of the things that happens to us is that as God is at work in us and we are all at different places in our walk of faith and we are at different places in our maturity in Christ we're at different places in our character development we are at different places of dying to ourselves it becomes easy for us to forget that in spite of the way that someone may not be at the level that you feel that you are or may not be at the level that you see that they maybe should be or be at the place where, they, where, where you think they need to be, we can lose sight of what God is doing and think, well, maybe God, you know, may, may, maybe God is dealing with me, but I don't know about that person. I, I know I'm part of this building, but is that person part of this building? We need to get that stuff out of our heads. Because God is for sure at work. He is for sure doing something that is great and glorious. And so the first thing that, we, that, that you guys repeated after me last week was this. Say this, Jesus is a life-giving stone. He says in verse 4, he says, coming to him as to a living stone. And so we pause for a moment because we were instructed in, in the beginning portion of chapter 2. In verse 2, he says to us, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And what, and, and what I said when I was dealing with that portion of scripture is that we are supposed to be childlike but not childish. And as children of God, no matter how mature we become, no matter how much we know of the Bible, no matter how long we've been in church, no matter how much we think we have arrived, we must make sure that we remain like a child who is dependent upon the breast of his mother for food. Hallelujah. 
I was talking with Pastor Robert, and we were, we, we were talking on the phone, I think, last week or the week before, and he was sharing with me. He said, you know, it's funny, man. He said, because, you, you know, you, you learn scripture, and you learn about different doctrines and different things in the Bible, and he said, and then you get real sharp in one area, and then all of a sudden you find yourself a little dull in another area. And so what happens is we need to continually grow. That is the reason why I challenge you on an annual basis to read through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Not so you can just be religious or make it just a religious action, but so you don't forget stuff. So you are constantly reminded of the doctrines of glory, the doctrines of the gospel. So you are constantly reminded of who God is and that you don't feel like, man, I'm super strong in this area. And then you forget about these other areas. It is important for us to realize that we should hunger after the word of God like that. But in this portion in chapter 4, he says, coming unto him as unto a living stone. And what he is saying, the picture is, as a people who continuously come to him, a people who are abiding in him, a people who are dwelling in Christ, and that is what should be happening. That the same way that we continue to approach the word of God, that we do the same thing in our approach of Jesus Christ, and our abiding in him, that we come to him as unto a living stone it goes on to say rejected indeed by men but acceptable to God rejected indeed by men it is only he continues on in verse 5 he says you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and so the first thing we get is that Jesus is a life-giving stone. Remember, he's a living stone. He's not dead. He's not just some rock somewhere. But he is like the rock in the wilderness that gave out the living water. You remember that in the Old Testament? When, when, and Jesus is compared to this living rock. He is that spiritual rock. And the beauty of our Jesus is that he is not stuck in one location. He is not only in the church building. He is not only in your bedroom. He is not only in your car. He is everywhere that you go and always offering you and me that life that we need in order to live gloriously and victorious in Christ he is constantly with us he is a living stone and then he goes on and he says that he is building something with what he says you also are living stones why you remember a couple of weeks ago we, before I started this series I was dealing with the topic of gospel centered and I was talking about Jesus Christ being our identity remember and I said that Jesus Christ the gospel that is where we get our identity and what he is saying here he is saying Jesus is a living stone and you also are living stones why? Because he's pointing us back to what is important for us. And it is that we find our identity in Jesus Christ and in him alone. See, I repeat this because some of you weren't here when I said it, and it's worth repeating because I need to be reminded of this all the time anyway, glory to God. It is that we do not find our identity in things. We do not find our identity in our job. Hello, somebody. We do not find our identity in how big of a paycheck we bring in. We do not find our identity in how great or how good our families look or the opposite. We do not lose identity because our paycheck is not as big as we would like it to be. We do not lose our identity because our families are not perfect. Hallelujah. Thank you for his grace. 
We find our identity in Jesus Christ alone. And the sad reality is that many of us, while we call ourselves Christians and we love Jesus, we lose sight of that. And I can only speak for myself for sure, but I know that there are some of us, we find our identity in so many other things. But Jesus uses Peter to tell us, you are living stones. You are living stones. The same way that Jesus is a living stone, you are living stones. And he is supernaturally gluing us together through what? Through love. If you don't have love, you are nothing. It's my daughter's memory verse for the month, I guess. If you do not have love, Love. Paul said, you can give your body to be burned up. You can give all of your goods. You can speak in tongues until the cows come home. Hello. You can, listen, you can be walking on water. And if you do not have love, you're just making a bunch of noise. It is worth nothing. So what do you think the enemy is going to attack? The love that we have for one another. Let me, let me, let me put it to you like this. It's not the enemy who offends us, nor does the enemy make you offend somebody. So get that out your head. Hello. Because the devil did not make you do it. Equete <laughs> diablo. In English, is that this devil? Uh huh. <laughs> we we want we want to blame. I, I I don't have any. You know, I I don't feel bad for Satan because he gets blamed all the time because he deserves all that. But here's the point. The point is. It is not Satan who is making you offend your brother, making you live in the flesh. Those are choices that you make. But here is where the enemy comes in. It is when those offenses occur. It is when you let someone down. It is when you speak harshly to someone. It is when you forget to call somebody back. It is when you do these type of things that the enemy comes in and he begins to just get up in your head with all kind of stupidity. And then you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. Am I going to accept that and let that extinguish the love that should be bubbling up inside me toward my brothers and sisters, or am I going to rebuke that and allow the love of God to bring me closer to them? See, because what we'll do is this. This is, why, this is why this is important. What we'll do is say, man, you know what? She, she's just nasty. So we mark her, or we mark him. He's just this, or he's just that. We don't, we, we don't even take them into our prayer closet with us, Asking Jesus to help them with their nastiness. Right? I mean, hello. If someone, if someone is nasty, can you at least pray for them? Because you know what happened? When you begin to pray for them, you begin to understand them. Well, other, I've seen this happen tons of times. Folks, and I won't mention any names because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. No one's feelings in here. But there have been plenty of times people will get around certain other folks, and they just look at me like, how do you deal with them? And I'm like, man, and I'm not saying I'm super spiritual. But what I am telling you is I know this much. The way that I deal with those folks is I'm like, I need to pray for them extra. 
Not just the mention of them in prayer. Yo, you know, remember, and I'm going to just use his name because it's not him. You know, remember Aldo Banos. Not just that. Bless his family. No, no. We're like, God, you know, you know the issues, Lord. You know, you know, I don't know if I'm the problem, he's the problem. But the bottom line, there's a problem. You are in the process of building something, and if I don't get my mind off the problem and I don't get my mind onto the process of what you're doing, it's going to be messed up forever. Because for whatever reason, you have us in the same building a couple times a week, glory to God. For some reason, you have us going to the same fellowship activities. So I don't know what the issue is, but what I do know is that you are in the process of building. So what I'm saying is when you begin to embrace what God is doing and you say, wait a second, he is a living stone. I am a living stone. She, he, they are living stones. I may not like them. They may not be stones living the way I want them to live. Nonetheless, they are living stones. God is bringing us together, and I got to make a decision. Am I going to reject what God is building? Am I going to reject what God is doing? Am I going to reject that? Or am I going to reject my flesh? Am I going to reject my own desires? Am I going to reject my own will and allow God to build according to his pattern, not mine? This is the question we have to ask ourselves in this living, loving, glorious relationship that God has called us into. It's only supernaturally that God is able to build us and bring us together as his people. And what he'll do is he'll use those people that rub you the wrong way to help you understand you have some flesh to deal with. Hello? And just like in marriage, stop praying for God to change them. Pray for God to change you, and you'll see how amazingly quick they change. Right? Lord, you fasted for God to change them. God, you know this man. You know his heart. You know the wickedness in him, Lord. God, change him. You praying, fasting, ain't nothing happening. Just humble yourself and repent of your foolishness. Right? The Bible talks about wicked people, foolish people, right? And then wise people. Obviously, if you're praying like that, you're not very wise. Mm, glory to God. And you, you can flip it around. I'm not going to go and do the whole drama for the women, but all I'm saying is, okay, if you're the one praying that prayer for your spouse, pray for yourself. Because what does God do? That's the place where you die. Listen to me. The place where you die the most to yourself is in relationship with other folks. And I say this to the, to the couples that I do counseling with. I tell them this all the time. I said, if you as a man would live to love your wife as Jesus loves the church, when are you going to have time to complain about her? All that complaining. Really. And I say the same thing to the wife. If you will live your life submitting to your husband, honoring him, respecting him the way scripture tells you, when are you going to have time to be complaining about him? If you are living your life to please that other person, something changes radically. It's, it's this reciprocal effect. It's this love flowing, love, all of this stuff. Just, it's amazing how it works, but we don't get it. Hmm. Bishop, marriage doesn't come to like chapter three. It's all right. We're going to talk a little bit about it today. Glory to God. Amen. Listen, God is building. And so we got to, we, we, we have to be in line with, we have to be attuned with what he's doing. He says there that we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So we understand this. It's all about Jesus. Say it's all about Jesus. 
It is about him. He is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. He is the one that is supposed to be the, the primary objective and focus in our lives. It is him. It is not a thing. It is not things. It is not accomplishments. It is not saying, I did this for Jesus. I did that for Jesus. The greatest thing that any of us should want is to be able to say, I know him and understand him. I am walking in his ways because he wants you to find him. Hallelujah. He wants you, he wants me to know him. He wants us to walk with him in that intimacy. And so that should be the goal of every Christian. He says we're supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We talked about this last week, and I pray to God that every male leader, every female leader of the home took to heart what I challenged you with, and that you really began to build up those, those prayer altars in your home, that you began to establish a time of worship, a time of prayer together. And if you, deal, if you didn't, then I call you to repentance today because God is trying to do something. And by you being stiff-necked, by you being hard-hearted, by you deciding, well, you know what, that's for someone else. It is not for me. You are being disobedient to what the Holy Spirit is calling the church to. Hear me. He is calling the church to this. And I know that's harsh and I know that's rough, but you know what? Sometimes when a person doesn't want to wake up, you got to wake them up roughly. You, you, you see it on TV. Sometimes you got to come with a cold bucket of water and just dump it on them. The bottom line is you waking up is more important than me rubbing you the right way. Hello. And so if I rub you the wrong way, we talked about that five minutes ago, and it's to help you deal with your flesh. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So ultimately, God is calling us to do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. We talked about worship. We talked about the word of God. We talked about prayer. It's not going to be easy. It is going to be something that requires effort. It's going to be something that's not going to be normal. It's not just going to be second nature. It should be. But you have to remember, there is opposition on a spiritual level. Satan does not want families to establish their home as a place of worship and prayer for God's glory to dwell. Because when that happens neighborhoods begin to be impacted by the glory and the power of God when that happens souls begin to be changed and transformed and so you've got to realize that is the opposition that is there and so what do we do with repentance and humility and walking in obedience his grace is sufficient to help us to do what to do what he's called us to do offer up spiritual sacrifices he says you are a holy priesthood he said, you're not just a living stone, but he's building up this spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. And so you know what he does? This is awesome. Because when you look up the word priesthood and you look at the Old Testament, what you find is there were a select group of people. There was a select group of people, and they were the priesthood. They were the only ones who were allowed to enter into the presence of God. And what did they do as priests? They intercede for the people, and then they also spoke to the people on behalf of God. And so this select group was responsible for those things, to offer up sacrifices for mercy and forgiveness and offer up sacrifice of praise. They were the ones who were selected to do that. And you know what Jesus does on the cross? On the cross, you remember the Bible says that the veil tore from the top to the bottom because God Almighty was literally going like this. He was tearing the veil so that way we would be able to enter into his presence. And so what he does is he levels the playing field and he said, it is not solely the bishop or the elders or the pastor's responsibility to pray and intercede but every single person who calls himself a Christian notice this is a general epistle Peter is writing to the entire church and he is saying you are all part of the priesthood it's all part of our identity 
You are part of the priesthood. Well, Bishop, I don't know how to pray. Get into his presence. His spirit will teach you. Did you hear that? I, I, I don't, Bishop, I can't pray for more than five minutes. Listen, I'll give you a list that'll last you a couple hours. I, I don't understand. I mean, <laughs> glory to God. But, but some of us, we get into prayer, and it's like, I don't know, we get so spiritual, we forget to be practical. Listen, pray for your neighbor. Hello. Pray for the leadership in the church. The Bible gives us plenty of stuff. Pray for the leaders in the nation. How about that? Glory to God. Pray for the other men in the church. Pray for the women in the church. Pray for the families in the church. Listen, I can guarantee you, you don't have Mike, there we go. We got it. I can guarantee you this, you don't have to know everybody's business, but here is what you can know for certain, and this is what you can be 100% assured of. Everybody's life is not perfect. Everybody in the church is going through something, and that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit, because you don't need to hear somebody say, I'm going through this, I'm going through that. The Spirit of God is able to burden your heart. He is able to direct you in prayer and show you this is what needs to be prayed for. And you'll be just praying, and all of a sudden you're praying for someone, and you'll be like, man, I don't even know. I feel weird praying like this because you don't know what's going on. But the fact of the matter is let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Let him teach you how to pray and how to offer up those spiritual sacrifices and become that holy priesthood, that set-apart person that is called into the priesthood of all believers. We begin to depend upon the Spirit of God and upon His work within our lives. This is what He calls all of us. The second thing that we repeated last week was this. Say this, men will either stand upon Christ or stumble over Christ. He says in verse 4, he said, rejected indeed by men. And then he goes on to verse 20, I mean in verse 6, and he says, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And verse 7 says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected. The, the, to, to people who disobey, Jesus becomes this stone which the builders reject. He, but, but he has become the chief cornerstone. Cornerstone, And while people are rejecting Jesus, while people are saying, I don't want to do it Jesus' way, while people are saying, I don't want to obey the word of God, because listen to me, when you disobey scripture, you disobey Jesus. When you disobey the commands of God, you are rejecting Jesus. You are saying, I don't want it your way. I don't want to do it your way. And what you are ultimately saying, something else is your God. You worship your own knowledge, you worship philosophy, you worship your own opinion above the opinion of God. That's what you're saying when you reject him. So he says that to those who, who, who do not believe or those who are disobedient, that's the proof of your rejection and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And so it is important for us to understand what, what, what Peter is saying here. He's saying Jesus has been rejected. 2,000 years ago, we, 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 we talked about this a little bit. But 2,000 years ago, you know, a little more than that, when Jesus walked the earth, the religious leaders of that day, they were building a, a, a religious system. And they were building it. I mean, they had interpretation of scriptures. They had added all kind of stuff that you had to do in order to be ceremonial clean. They were doing everything. And, and li listen to me. They were doing this because of one reason. And it is because they really sincerely started off wanting to please God. 
They really and sincerely understood God was holy, God was pure, and we have to apply the laws unto our lives. That was the way that they started. But what happened was they began to worship their ways. They began to worship their traditions. They began to worship their things that they were doing. And when Jesus walked up on the scene, they couldn't handle that. And they said, hold on a second. You don't, you don't, you don't do like we do. You don't wash your hands the way that we wash our hands. You can't be holy. You, you, you tell people on the Sabbath day to get up, pick up their mat, and walk. That's not holy. How can you, how can you do that? You, you tell people, you go in the temple, folks are bent over, haven't stood up in years, and you pick the Sabbath day to say, stand up straight, be loose of your infirmity. Now think about the stuff they're getting offended with. They're getting offended with Jesus doing good. They're getting offended with Jesus doing good things for people, helping them. Withered hand, straighten it out. No, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Are you serious? Jesus says, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but you know what? The scriptures talk about me. The scriptures testify of me. And you know what they said? I was, I was reading this morning in the book of John, and, 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 and they, they, they were talking about no prophet. This, this is what happens when you begin to love your tradition above God. You become blinded to plain truths in scripture. They were arguing about who Jesus was, and I think it's like chapter 7 of the book of John, or the gospel of John, and they're arguing about who Jesus is, and they're talking about all of this stuff, and, you know, Jesus goes up to the feast, you know, his brothers don't believe in him, and when he gets out there, you know, they're having this conversation about him, and they're saying, listen, man, they're saying he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the, be the Messiah because no prophet has been born in Galilee. Now, wait a second. Now, think about this. First and foremost, they all knew where Jesus was from. They, 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 they had some understanding about those things. But here's the thing. The Bible teaches us. You go back and you look at Nahum and you look at Jonah. You know where those prophets were from? Galilee. Why is that important? Because they became blinded even to the plain scriptural teaching. Because they loved their tradition. And so they were saying something that wasn't even true. And they were making up. They were, this was the reason or one of the reasons why they were rejecting Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene to offer them salvation, to offer them deliverance, to offer them freedom. And they're like, nah, man, we don't want what you have to offer. We don't want it your way. And that's 2,000 plus years ago, right? Well, what about today? As we build our lives, as we build the way that we want to build, as we build how we're going to worship, because that's what it all comes down to. It all goes from our identity, who we are, what is going to define us, and then out of that identity, what happens? We worship. Everybody worships, whether you worship Jesus or not, that just determines on your identity. Where do you find it? You find it in him, then you will do what? You'll do what these priests are supposed to do. You will offer spiritual sacrifices. You will offer worship unto Jesus. Everybody has worship in their life, some area. Jesus comes on the scene in their lives, they reject him. Think about your life for a moment. How many times has Jesus come knocking on your door, communicating to you, whether it's through a preacher, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through his word, whether it's through a dream, whether it's through whatever, knocking on your door, and you don't respond favorably. You don't respond in obedience. That is rejection of him. You don't respond and do what he's calling you to do. That is rejection of him. The beauty of him, he is so merciful and gracious, and he allows you to hear this message today, and he says, you may have rejected me a thousand times, but today's an opportunity for you to repent and accept me. 
Today is an opportunity for you to turn from your own ways, from you to turn from your own thoughts, from you to turn from your own desires and turn to me. That's what he says to all of us. He opens the door for us and he communicates that to us. And he says, no matter, listen, you could be a believer who has just gone real cold. Just become lukewarm like the church in Revelation where you're no longer passionate about God. You're no longer passionate about him or the things of God. You're more passionate about other stuff in your life. That is being lukewarm. And you know what? That nauseates God. What do you mean, Bishop? That's what he said. He said, I'm going to vomit you out. That means that he was nauseous. It nauseates him whenever he sees someone who is more passionate about other things than him. So we either trip over Jesus or we stand upon his word. Whenever we try to save ourselves, whenever we try to do things our own way, we are rejecting Christ as the only way. And that is men stumbling over Jesus. The last verse there, it says in verse 8, the last portion, it says they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And some people will have you think that God has appointed these people to this wrath. No, what happens is these people reject God. These people reject the word of God. Therefore, what happens is because you reject God's word, you will not be absent from God's wrath. Understand this. Because you reject his word, because you reject what God is communicating, because you reject that, you store up for yourself the wrath of God. The wrath of God in an eternal sense is spending eternity in hell separated from God. And listen, it is important for us to get this because you have the Apostle Paul who writes, I believe, in 1 Corinthians, and he breaks down this whole list of things of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He repeats it in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, and he communicates all of these different things. He talks about stuff like drunkenness and orgies and all of these different things. He talks about liars and cowards. The book of Revelation, it communicates again, and it says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Understand this, please. He is writing these things to people who are sitting in churches who think their eternity is secure and yet they are living as hypocrites they are living how they want to live doing what they want to do and they will be sadly sorely mistakenly going before God thinking everything is okay and they will experience his wrath God doesn't want that for anybody sitting in this place Understand me, Jesus died on that cross to pay the penalty for all of our sin so that way we could be born again, so that way we could experience eternal life in this life here and now and be transformed and walk with him. But when you disobey God and you disobey his word, the wrath of God is what you are going to experience because no one, the Bible says clearly, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. That's what your Bible says. He says those people are going to experience that. Judgment is guaranteed for all of those who reject the word of God. Number three, repeat this after me. You didn't hear this one last week. Say, God chooses to use the rejected. The first one that, he, that we see him using, we see him using Jesus himself. We see him using the one who men rejected. Men rejected Jesus, and God says that he is precious. God says that he is one that is chosen. He is precious. He is the elect. He is the precious chief cornerstone. 
I want you to understand just for a moment because I gave you an analogy last week about the story of Solomon's temple. But I want you to understand in context when the Bible here is speaking of the chief cornerstone, it is saying that Jesus is the primary foundational stone, the first stone that needs to be laid. Why is this important? Because if you are leaning upon anything else beside Jesus, it will crumble, you will fall, and failure will come into your life, whether it is here and now or it is eternal. Do you understand what I'm saying? If anything, everything in our lives should be dependent upon the rock of our salvation. Everything in our lives should be resting upon him. We should not be leaning on our own understanding in any area of our life. We should not, not be depending on anything else except Jesus as the rock, the chief cornerstone. That's what God calls him. He is this chief cornerstone. And God chooses to use him and raise him up as the elect. It is God's delight, church, and I love this. It is his delight to offer us mercy and to make us his own. He gives this breakdown in verse 9. He says this. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's where you get rejected. Who once were not a people, you once were rejected, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, you were rejected, you were under God's wrath. I was rejected under God's wrath, but now have obtained mercy. Because I'm good? Never. Because I fast and because I pray or because I have a prayer altar in my home, nope, none of that stuff gets me into heaven. None of that stuff earns me God's mercy. I want you to understand this. The reason we do those things is because we want to honor him and we want to glorify him. It is not because we are trying to earn something from him. That is being a moralist. That is what happens. Many of us, that is what we are. We simply do things. And if I, I, I was listening to a message by Mark Driscoll. He was having a conversation. He was talking about freedom. And he was having a conversation with someone. And he asked this person, he said, do you think you're a righteous man? And the man said to him, absolutely, I'm righteous. And he said, okay, why do you think you're righteous? And he said, well, because I don't drink. He said, because I don't, you know, I, I don't look at pornography. He said, because I don't do this, I don't do that. And he went down the list, and Mark Driscoll started laughing at him. He said, what's so funny? He said, man, you are crazy. He said, what do you mean? He said, he said, don't you, aren't you, you think you're a righteous man, don't you? He said, I know I'm a righteous man. This is Mark Driscoll speaking to him in response. And he said, well, how do you know that? He said, because Jesus died for me. Oh, y'all don't get that. See, we, 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 we just minimize like what Jesus did, and we measure our own righteousness by all the good stuff we do and all the bad stuff we don't do. That is being a moralist. You are not truly trusting Jesus for your salvation when you measure everything. Well, I deserve heaven. No, you don't. I don't care how good you are. You deserve hell. Because the little thought that you had, that put Jesus on the cross. The thing that you didn't, because see, here's the thing. We, we measure all the good stuff we do. We measure all the bad stuff we don't do. But we forget about all the right things we're supposed to do that we don't do. You know, those sins of omission, those put Jesus on the cross too. Hallelujah. Isn't it wonderful to know that you are worthy of nothing but hell? Hallelujah. That's bad news, right? But isn't it awesome news to know that Jesus paid the price to deliver you from the penalty of hell? Isn't it awesome to know that you will fail and Jesus never does? 
Isn't it awesome to know that you will fall short, you will sin, you will do things that do not glorify God, and you can never be righteous enough to inherit heaven upon your own goodness, but glory to God for Jesus Christ, for his grace that delivers us and sets us free. That is why we are who we are, because of what Jesus does. We were rejected. We were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We were without mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. And so just as Jesus is rejected, you and I would be rejected. But God comes, rescues us by his grace, and then he gives us this breakdown of things. He says in verse 9, but you are a chosen generation. So what does that mean? He's not talking about a 40-year span, which is how you normally would measure a generation in Scripture. He is saying you are chosen out of your generation. God has chosen you and picked you out of your generation to hear this word even today so that way you can understand that he has set you apart to do what? We'll get to that in a moment. But he says you are a chosen generation. You are a chosen people, a people who didn't choose God, a people who God chose. And then he goes on to say you are a royal priesthood. And so earlier in chapter, in, in, in verse 5, he says that you are a holy priesthood. Now he goes and he says you are a royal priesthood. Again, this is all dealing with our identity. Jesus, it's all about him. And he says, these are the things that you are. So when he says royal, he adds a different dimension unto this priesthood. Because now he ties it back to the book of Deuteronomy when he said that the children of Israel, they would be a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood unto me. And then he ties it into the book of Revelation that says that you are all kings and priests. And what is he saying? He's connecting these two offices together that we find in the Old Testament. He says that you are a royal. Royalty meant authority. It means dominion. It means power. And he's saying you are a person who is royalty in God's eyes because of what his son did for you. Because he has brought you into the kingdom. And so now you have authority and the priesthood gives you intimate access. So you and I have authority from God Almighty. And we have intimate access unto God. And he says you are a holy nation. Again, using the terminology that was applied to the children of Israel. And he says, you are a holy nation. So now what happens is, because Jesus comes, tears the veil, calls us out of darkness, brings us into this marvelous life. He's telling us that you are now part of this, this covenant relationship. And, and the same way that Israel and those, and those are my chosen people, so now you are those people. You don't replace them, so don't get that twisted. That's not what I'm saying. But what you do, now you become part of this glorious inheritance where God is going to make us all one in eternity. He says, you are a holy nation. What does it mean? It means you're set apart. It means you are set apart for his glory. You are set apart for his honor. That's what it means. And then he says last, I love this one. He says, you are his own special people. When you look at that word special people, the way that it means, it means to come around. And what it is saying is, it is literally saying this, it means to create and surround. That's a beautiful picture. And what God does is he creates us in the new birth, and then he does what? He surrounds us. He gives us new life, and then he surrounds us with what? He doesn't just surround us with glory, he surrounds us with protection. What he is saying is, you are my special people. You are peculiar. You are set apart. And, I re and, and, and I've given you new life, and I am surrounding you with my protection. I am surrounding you with all that I am because you are mine. 
Here's the issue. We struggle with that all the time. We struggle with that all of the time. Are we his or are we our own? When we don't respond to his spirit, you know what we're saying? I'm my own. When we don't respond to what his word is communicating, you say, I'm my own. When we don't obey him, when he tells us and he motivates us to go and share the gospel with someone, to go and communicate, you know what you're saying? I'm my own. That is what you're doing. We struggle with this all the time. But he says, you are my people. And what is the purpose of us being his people? He goes on and he says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are his to proclaim, to declare. Listen, proclaiming something means you have to be vocal about something. The first thing that we do is we live righteously. The first thing that we do is we live according to the, to, to the standards that God has placed in his word. Look at verse 11 with me. He goes on to say this. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe. Let's pause there. Because the apostle Peter, he is saying this. He's saying you are called to do what? To proclaim his praises. To declare him as holy. To declare him as righteous. To declare him as almighty, as powerful. To proclaim his praises. To declare his virtue. To declare his power. To talk about how glorious he is. Your life is supposed to communicate that. My lifestyle is supposed to communicate the reality of God, the virtue of God, the ability of God. My marriage should communicate the virtue, the fidelity, the power of God. My parenting should communicate the power, the wisdom, the direction of God. The way that I work in a work environment should declare God's strength, God's faithfulness, God's ability. Those things should all declare that. The way that I treat my neighbors and I interact with other people should declare clearly that God Almighty exists. When we live to proclaim his praises, we join with all of creation that leaves people without excuse because when they look at creation and they're really amazed, I was sitting down and, and, with, with the therapist and she was talking, you know, they're having a whole conversation about politics and all this and that and somehow the conversation went to some, uh, so, so, some, something that was coming into our atmosphere and she just said this out of nowhere. She's like, man, she said, when God created the earth, and I don't, even, I don't know that this girl is a Christian, but she said, when God created the the earth he said he did a really awesome job because the atmosphere the way that and she started to break it down she said you know and there's like this heaven in there and he said and then up there stuff comes into our atmosphere and it gets consumed it burns up before it gets here why what 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 what, what, what does that have to do what it has to do with this that is creation declaring the virtues of god when you really start to study it out you really start to look at it you have to be like man somebody was really thinking when they did this Somebody was really considering there's going to be some stuff that's going to try to enter into this atmosphere to destroy, to do whatever, and I'm going to create a zone there that is going to consume everything before it comes and does damage. But you know what? Our lives should do the same thing. Our lives should declare just as clearly as the outer atmosphere declares God's wisdom and God's grace, so should our lives. That is what we've been called out of darkness for. So that way we can shine back into the darkness, the light, the glory, and the splendor of Almighty God. But see, here's the thing. We go back to this before. 
Jesus Christ is all about him. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the living stone. And then we get our identity from him. And out of our identity, we do what? We worship him. We, we offer spiritual sacrifices. We proclaim his praises. That's all worship. So when we are not proclaiming his praises, you know what it comes back to? Identity issue. You're having an identity problem. And the identity crisis is because you are not depending upon, you are not leaning upon that living stone, Jesus Christ. And so when we begin to depend on him, out of that we get our identity. And out of that identity, we begin to worship. And then you know what begins to happen? The last two verses, we begin to become missionaries in our world. We begin to be a people who are living with a purpose to glorify and honor God. But we also realize that our mission in this world is not simply to have good stuff and experience the best of life. But we are here to show this world the realities of who God is. We are here to bring them into a real understanding that God is not some faraway being, but that he is there and he wants to bring salvation to lives. He goes on to say this, and we didn't read this. We'll look at the first portion. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and as pilgrims. He's reminding us of the beginning of the conversation that he has in chapter 1. He said, Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Understand this. Being born again is a one-time experience, yes. But it doesn't end with just one prayer you prayed or one feeling you felt. You need to understand that there are lust of your flesh. There are desires that you have because you are sinful by nature that war against your soul. He's telling you, listen, do not give in to those desires of the flesh. Because when you give in to those desires of the flesh, not only do you hinder our relationship, but you also hinder others from coming into relationship. When I live as a heathen, and what I mean by that, when I live as a person who does not know God, when I live as a person who does not know Jesus, what I am doing is I am helping them stay away from Jesus. When I live in an ungodly manner, what I am doing is I am allowing them to speak evil of me in a right way because they have a right to say what they're saying. But Peter says, let your conduct be honorable. When they see you, let them see the honor, the glory, and the blessing of God Almighty. When they look at your life, let them see the reflection of the rock of your salvation. When they look at your life, let them see that you have been set apart. Let them see that you revel in the fact that God chose you. Let them see that you are overwhelmed by those things and that your life is being changed and transformed. Let your conduct be honorable among them. Because here's the bottom line. Everybody is going to receive a visit from God Almighty. Do you hear me? Look what he says. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, those are those who don't know God, those are those who are outside of covenant, that when they speak against you as evildoers, listen, they are going to speak against you as evildoers. They are going to say things that are not true about you. When people communicate things that are not true about you, rejoice. Did you hear what I just said? When people say nasty stuff about you, when people say things that are just not true, don't get all mad, oh, that's my reputation, rejoice. Rejoice. They lied on Jesus. You think they're not going to lie on you? 
They talk bad about Jesus. Do you think they're not going to talk bad about you? They talked bad about the apostles. They said all kind of stuff. When the apostles went into the temple, and, and, and they, I think it was in, in, in Ephesus, maybe it was somewhere around there in the book of Acts, they go and, the, and, and they have like these goldsmiths that are making these goddesses and all this type of stuff. The people are turning away from idolatry, and all of a sudden the goldsmiths in the town are like, listen, not the goldsmiths, but like the, the iron workers, the ones that are making this, they're like, hey, man, you need to get these people out of here because they're going to hurt our economy. Hello. Was that their heart? No, they weren't trying to hurt the economy. They were simply trying to bring salvation to people. They were being evil spoken of. It is going to happen. And when they speak evil of you, let it be a lie. Let it not be the truth. Hello? Let it be a lie. Let it be like, man, that would never be. I, would, I, got, I, got, I, got, a, I got a nasty email this week, and I, and I, and I emailed Pastor Chad. I, I was showing him. I was, I was sending it to the leaders. And when I, I, I emailed Pastor Chad because he didn't reply or anything like that. And I loved his reply. It made me feel good for a moment. He said, listen, man, he said, I know you better than that. That's a beautiful thing, that people can know you better than that. I'd be like, man, that, that's not him. What you're saying there is just not true. That, that's not you. And listen, sometimes, I'm going to tell you something, because for me, I, I'm just to be honest about me. Sometimes folks can be so nasty and so belligerent that you start to maybe, man, is, they, is there a little truth to what they're saying? You, you, you start to think about, like, man, but listen, live the way that God calls you to live. Let those things be a lie. He says this. He says that, he says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Now listen, I, I want you to get this. This word visitation is used like four times in the New Testament. This exact word, it's episcopal, I believe, is the, is, is the word. And it talks about those who desire the office of a bishop. It talks about those who are supposed to be overseers. And then there is this time here where it talks about this day of visitation. And it's when God comes to inspect the hearts of men. That's what he's talking about. Saying when God comes to visit. In the book of Luke, it also talks, and I believe it's like in chapter 19 or something like that, it talks about Jerusalem being destroyed, and it said it is because they missed their day of visitation. It wasn't talking, it wasn't talking about future judgment in the book of Luke. It was talking about the day when Jesus visited them to bring them salvation. It was talking about the days when Jesus preached in their streets. It was talking about those days. And so there is a future day of visitation where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that's the bottom line. And they're going to glorify God. But here is a thing that is the heart behind Peter. It is this. It is that when God comes and visits those people who don't know Jesus that you have been a living witness to, that they will be able to humble themselves and say God is real. That's what he wants. That they will be able to glorify God. That they will be able to humble themselves before Almighty God and say, you know what? I've seen God in Juan's life. I've seen God in Jamie's life. I've seen God in the lives of these people that call themselves Christians. And I'm not going to say, I don't want God. I'm going to bring him glory and bring him honor. I was, I, my, my, my daughter and my wife, they, they were watching a movie last night and I only got to catch the end part of the movie. But basically, it's a movie. It's, it's, it's a really good movie if you guys want to watch it. Um, it's a, you know, a Christian base. I don't think it's a true story or anything like that. But it, the, movie, the movie is entitled Johnny. And it is about this, it is about this family that the, 
the, the, the, the family had a, had a son. The son was killed in a car accident, and so the, whole, you know, the family was, like, totally devastated and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, the, the, the family, the, the father, he is a, he, he's a doctor, and he, he, I guess he deals with cancer or something like that. And so he's a specialist, and so he's dealing with this, and the primary care doctor refers this one um, case to this doctor. And so, you know, the primary care person tells him, listen, man, you need to be careful with this kid. He said, because this is a special kid, and he's really going to take your heart. And he's like, yeah, but I deal with all kinds of special kids. I deal with all kinds of cancer patients with leukemia and so on and so forth. And so anyway, the, 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 longer, the, the longer short of the story is this, is that the kid was an orphan. And he was, the, the, the kid who was sick with leukemia, he was an orphan. And one of the people that was there in the orphanage, he used to teach him the Bible. And so whenever this kid would talk to you, he'd be quoting scriptures to you. He'd be telling you the book of Proverbs and telling you stuff. And he's just preaching Jesus all day. And so at the end of the movie, you know, the father, I'm, I'm going to tell you the movie so y'all just see it and just enjoy it. But anyway, the end of the movie is this, okay? Here, I, have, I have to drive this point so you can see the purpose of the, of the whole story. Because if, if I don't, you'll be like, why do you tell us that? I don't want to be on a rabbit trail and leave you halfway. Listen, here's what happens. The doctor goes to this men's retreat. You know, he gets invited by, the, by, by, by another doctor. He goes to this men's retreat with the church. The guy's not a Christian, okay? This doctor that's a specialist, he's not a Christian, and he is really mad at God because, you know, this whole thing with his son and stuff like that. Well, anyway, he shows a part where the man is sitting on the beach, and he's looking out, and he's talking to God, and he's saying, you know, he said, when this whole thing happened with my son, I was so bitter and so angry about this whole thing. He said, I couldn't believe that you would take my son, and I really just wanted to be angry with you and all of this stuff. And he says, but then you send this child into my life who has every reason in the world to hate you, to be bitter, and to be angry. And he has shown me how foolish I've been. The point of the matter is, this boy came into his life, had this great faith in God. And what I'm challenging you to do is to be that person in the lives of those who you live among. That's what it means to be a missionary in this world. It means to be a person who understands that I don't have to go to Africa. I don't have to go to Honduras. I don't have to go to some other place to be a missionary. But God has appointed me to be a missionary right where I am. Because those people that I'm around, they need Jesus. And if you're surrounded by a bunch of Christians, you and those Christians need to connect. And you need to go and reach some other folk for Jesus. Amen? Because we have been given a mandate. And Peter outlines it clearly. He says, in the day of visitation, you want them to glorify God. In the day of visitation, this is God's heart. He wants them to humble themselves. Amen? So I'll stand to our feet and bow our heads for a moment.